The book of Acts. Acts chapter 5. But here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to start back where we were last week. Uh, don't be scared. Uh, we're not going to do Ananias and Sapphira again. Um, but I'm going to start back where we were last week because uh, one of our goals in, in, in working through books of the Bible as a church, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, but one of the goals that we, that we have as we do this is to help you learn to read your Bibles in context. I mean, so much of the struggle that we have in, in our lives and in the churches is that we don't know how to read our Bibles, and we fail to read them in context. So as we go through the passage that we've come to this week, I want you to see where it fits in its context because that's going to help us understand what it has to say. It's going to help us to make sense of it and hopefully help open up some spots in our hearts where, where the Holy Spirit can do, can do the work he needs to do. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 5, but I'm going to go backwards a little bit to Acts chapter 4 uh, just to help give us a little bit of a runway into it. So Acts chapter 4, verse 32, says this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them, and they brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as he had need. Now, what we saw last week, and what's going to be important for us to see as we go through our text this week, is that all the the fruit, let's call it, since we've talked about laying roots and bearing fruit, all the fruit that we saw in the life of this church last week, this freedom that God had given them from his, due to his grace from the love of stuff and this freedom that was born in their hearts from the love of the opinion of men and the praise of men was born out of particular roots that were dug down deep in their soul. And Luke gives us a clue to this when he says, now the full number of those who believed... And we said, if we're going to understand the fruit that we see in the life of this local church and the fruit that we prayerfully pursue in the life of this local church, we're going to have to understand what the roots were that were laid deep into this church's heart that produced this fruit. And and we saw last week, I'll give you the the quick 50,000-foot view, is that this group, this church, had actually come to believe with their whole heart, their whole soul, their whole mind, that their sin, their sin was an offensive thing in the face of a holy and righteous God, that their sin was a wretched thing in the face of a holy righteous, and a righteous God and amounted to what we could call cosmic treason. Their sin amounted to an effort to undermine the reign and rule of God. Their sin amounted to a treasonous attempt to throw off God's rule over his people and to put their rule, their kingdom, their will, and their desires in place. They had actually come to believe this. And they had come to believe through the scriptures that they had through the Old Testament and the preaching of the apostles during this time that not only did their sin amount to a treasonous attempt towards God, but that treasonous attempt to overthrow God cost them their life. That due to their sin, they deserved death. Not just physical death, but something far worse, spiritual death. This is what they had grown to believe through their understanding of the scriptures and the preaching of the apostles, but they had come to believe something even better. Like we said last week, they had come to learn through the preaching of the apostles that not only did they deserve death for their sin, but that the wisdom of God, you remember this, made a way for the love of God to satisfy the justice of God, the righteousness of God, without compromising 
the holiness of God. The wisdom of God made a way for the love of God to satisfy the justice of God without compromising the holiness of God. This is what they had begun to believe. And they believed that God did this very thing through sending his only son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we were created to live and to die in our place for our sin to pay the price for the life that we chose to live instead. God made him, we said, who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we, we might become the righteousness of God. They actually began to believe that God, the holy, righteous, sovereign creator of the world, exhausted his righteous wrath upon his son in our place and that Jesus Christ died in our place for our sin and was buried and that God did not just leave him there but in his mercy and in his holiness he vindicated Jesus' perfect life in our place and his willing death in our place by raising him from the dead and exalting him to his right hand where right now he sits above all things all principalities and powers all earthly things and heavenly things they actually began to believe this and that by, in, by his grace and by his vindication of Jesus, God then offered them forgiveness. He then offered them the perfect righteousness and life of Jesus in their place. This is what they began to believe. We talked last week about what it meant to be a gospel-centered people. The roots of the message of the good news of Jesus Christ had taken root in their soul. And it was these roots that produced what we saw last week and what we see in this text. It, the gospel, this capacity that they were growing in to treasure the riches of the gospel and the message of the gospel produced in them a, a fellowship and a unity that we talked about last week that was unheard of. There was no man-made institution that could produce a type of unity that we saw in the life of this church last week. This particular fellowship, this treasuring of the riches of the gospel, this message of the gospel produced a grace-driven unity and generosity they were freed by the gospel, freed from the love of stuff, freed from the consumerism that was so marked the world around them and was so marked us. The roots of the gospel had gone down deep and produced this gospel-centered, grace-driven fruit of, of unity and generosity and, as we saw last week, effectiveness and power and mission. This gospel root produced a, a powerful and effective mission-mindedness in this church. And so if we're going to understand what we're going to see in the text this week, we're going to have to remember what it was that produced this in the life of this people. The roots of the gospel had begun to take deep and strong hold in their soul and in their life. And it was this gospel-centeredness that began to produce the fruit that we see. But as we talked last week, it wasn't all romance and righteousness, as John Stott said. This little story of this church is nestled into another story in the book of Acts of a persecution, of an, of an oppression, of an attack upon the life of this church. You see, you got to see the stories of how they, they fit. We saw in chapter 4 that as the grace of God came upon the church and empowered the church to be his witnesses, God moved through Peter and John in, in the healing of a man who had been lame since birth. And on the heels of God performing that miraculous miracle and then preaching the message of the gospel and the gates of the temple, the religious and civil leaders began to encroach them. They began to pressure them. They began to attack them. And so this story of this people, this community, this gospel-centered group is actually nestled in the story of an external persecution upon the church. And so we have to remember when we talk about what we see in this church, we're going to have to see what produces it because we're going to see something repeated again this week and we're going to understand a couple more things, a couple more characteristics about this church that 
But we have to see how they fit and where they, they come from. So now, Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Luke's going to say this. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. And none of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. And that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And, and they were all healed. Now, why in the world did Luke stick that in this section? we're going to read in just a second as the verses go on, it would have seemed to flow a lot better if he just didn't put this section right here. The story would make a, a whole lot more sense, but to understand how, how this actually fits in the story, you've you just got to go backwards a, a few verses. You know, on the heels of that persecution that we saw a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 4 after Peter and John healed that man and were brought before the council and they were released from the council. Remember, they went back to the people. They went back to the church community who, who obviously must have thought they were going to die. I mean, remember, just weeks before this, maybe a couple months before this, they had gone through the same scenario with Jesus, illegally called before the council, and by the end of the night, crucified on a cross. And here are Peter and John being called before the council, taken away from the people, and the church must have thought, here we go again. But instead, they show back up to the group, and when they come together, what do they do? They praise God, and they, and they pray. Here, let me, let me get my Bible. Let me just read to you what they say. Because you're going to have to understand this. And I love this. I just, I wish we could just stay in this section for a long time. And maybe that's just for my soul. I don't know. Maybe my soul needs it more. Um, but Acts chapter 4, verse 24. Let me read it to you. This is, what they, this is what they do. They lifted their voices together to God and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Listen to this prayer. The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers were gathered together and the Lord, uh, gathered against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servants, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Now listen to this. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What a prayer. On the wave of this first act of persecution against this early church, the people gather together, they praise God for his works in history and his promise to fulfill his covenant and his redemptive purposes with his people. And then they say this, you know what? You look at the threats. You, you deal with our circumstances. You know what's coming against us. We put that in your hands. Here's what we're concerned with. We're concerned with our hearts. Lord, please, 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 please empower us with boldness to preach your gospel. You deal with the persecution. You deal with the circumstances. You look upon their threats, but empower your people to speak with boldness. And Lord, bear witness to your word by stretching out your hand and healing those who are sick and performing signs that's what they prayed. Now, Luke's going to give us a glimpse of how God responds to that. That's how this little section fits in right here. Luke's giving us a glimpse of, of how God actually responds. You deal with the persecution, you give us boldness to preach your message, and God, we ask you bear witness to the power of your word by stretching out your hand. That's what we want to see happen. 
And I want you to notice one thing before we go on. I want you to notice what they didn't pray for. They didn't pray simply for miracles for the sake of miracles. We get caught up into that all the time. And I don't know what church background you come from. Maybe you come from one that tends to lean a little bit heavy this way. They didn't pray for miracles simply for the sake of, of a naked display of God's power and God's sovereignty over the earth. You know why? You know why they didn't do that? Because they understood that miracles can't save anybody. Miracles do not have the power of God for the transformation of the soul. The only thing that is the power of God for the transformation of the soul is the message of Jesus Christ. So what they prayed for were not miracles for the naked display of God's power, but they prayed for boldness to preach the word and for God to verify that word, to bear supernatural witness to that word through stretching out his hand and performing signs and wonders and healing those who were sick. That's what they prayed for. Unbelievable prayer. God, deal with our hearts. Empower us to be who you've called us to be. Continue to empower us to be centered on your gospel, to proclaim your gospel with effectiveness and power. And then, Lord, you, you bear witness to the power of that word. You do what only you can do. You stretch out your hand. You move mightily, not only in their hearts, but in the circumstances in the world around them. Unbelievable prayer. And here we see God moving just as they had prayed. And what was the result? What was the result of them being empowered to speak with boldness and God bearing witness to that word through stretching out his hand? More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes, both men and women. Great prayer. At root in that prayer was a desire to see people come to know the saving grace of Jesus. Not to just see miracles. Not to just preach well. It was to see people be transformed. What, what, what do we pray for? I, I don't know. What, what, what do you pray for? Maybe in 2011, our, our prayers could be shaped a little more by what this early church was concerned with. What's born in our hearts as the gospel takes deeper and deeper and deeper root. But there's more I want us to see. We've got to keep going. We can't stay there. Uh, preaching with boldness in Acts chapter 4 equals persecution. Preaching with boldness in Acts chapter 5 and God bearing witness to that preaching through stretching out his hand and performing miracles equals persecution. Verse 17. Let's read. Here's the story. Remember, picture, read it. But the high priest, he rose up. Apostles are preaching. People are getting saved. Miracles are happening. God is moving mightily in the midst of the people. The high priests, they rise up. And all who were with him, that's the party of the Sadducees, they were filled with jealousy. And they arrested the apostles and they put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. The angel of the Lord said, go and stand in the temple and speak to, all, and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. One second. The angels told them to go and preach. What did they do? They obeyed, right? You file that one away in your brain for a second. Now when the high priest came, come back and check on them. When the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and the senate of the, of the people of the state of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have the apostles brought back. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. And so they returned and reported, we found the, the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. And when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what, the, what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison, they're standing in the temple and teaching the people. And then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. 
And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. Can you, can you picture this? Here they are again. Not just Peter and John, but now all the apostles. Standing before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here, oh, listen to this. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And here's the question I want us to talk about as we go through this text and a few more verses after. Here's the question. What in the coming year and years to come, what will we be known for? What will we, what will Redemption Hill be known for? Look at what Luke said here. When the council gathers the apostles, they said, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here's what they were known for. Here's the accusation leveled against them. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. What an accusation. I mean, here's the problem. Here's the problem. You've been too effective. Your God has been too strong. You filled Jerusalem with your teaching. What an accusation. They're saying that Jerusalem is full of the message of the glory of the risen Lord Jesus, of the man Jesus laying down his life for sin and God raising him from the dead, conquering death, conquering sin, exalted to his right hand where he now rules and reigns as prince and lord forever and all of eternity. Having established his kingdom here on earth, you are teaching this and people are obeying it and believing it. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Listen, if you tuned me out when we were going through the family business and you had this thing going on in your brain that all we were after when it was all said and done was your money, here's what I want you to see. The passion behind everything that we do at Redemption Hill, the, the passion behind the understanding of our existence to glorify God through cultivating gospel-centered and grace-driven and mission-minded people that plant churches and transform communities is this, to see the city of Richmond filled with the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to see the whole earth covered with the gospel of Jesus Christ as the waters cover the earth. This is what's behind what we do. We don't want to be known for the place that we meet. We don't want to be known for the personalities that are in this place. We don't want to be known for the particular giftings that God brings into this place. The sheer thing I want to die, to pass on, and to be heard said about this church one day is that it was known for filling the city with the teaching of the gospel. That's what's behind this whole thing. We want the glory of God exalted in this city, and we want to see Richmond filled with the gospel. We want to see people from churches all around Richmond cultivated and filled and the roots laid deep in their souls in such a way they can treasure the riches of the gospel and fill the crevices of this city. We want to see pastors and church planters surfaced and trained and cultivated to go and to plant churches that train people in the gospel. We want to see missionaries cultivated and developed and surfaced and sent out to plant churches and to reach nations so that people can be transformed and the gospel can cover the earth. We want to be accused of having filled the city with the message of the gospel. That's what I want to spend my life for. 
That's the passion that exists behind all that we spent the first 20 minutes talking about. And so let me, let me help you in this. As you consider commitment to this church in the next year, as you consider giving to the church in the next year, and you consider giving towards our efforts at, at seeing the gospel take root in this city through that special offering, I don't want you to consider all the things the money is going to. I don't want you to just think about all the things and the people that the money is going to be spent on. I want you to think about the larger movement that we're a part of. I, I want you to actually consider that all that we're doing, it, it isn't centered on us. It's part of a much larger movement. And we just have a tiny bit part in it. And I want you to prayerfully consider how you're a part of this and how the church is a part of this universe-filling, everlasting, cannot-fail mission that, that Jesus said he was establishing. That's what was happening in Jerusalem. The gospel was taking root, not only in this people, but now it was spreading and filling this entire city. What will we be known for? What will we be known for next year? What will we be known for in 50 years? I hope it's this. I really do. I hope, I hope it's this. But what, but what enabled them to be able to do this? I mean, what, what enabled them to ab- be able to do this? Verse 20. This is what the angel had told them while they were imprisoned. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. What did they do? They obeyed. When faced with accusation and threat and persecution, what did they say? Verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. What will we be known for? What, what was another thing they were known for? What we, we see in the life of this early church is an unbelievably radical obedience to the word of God. An obedience to the word of God, to the command of God, that was not contingent upon the circumstances that they found themselves in. Their obedience showed no limit. Their obedience was not characterized by their circumstance. And what produces an obedience that's willing to risk its life, risk its job, risk its security, risk its comfort? What's, what's the only thing that's able to produce a freedom in the heart of people that are willing in the face of unbelievable circumstances to be obedient to the word and the will of God? It's the same thing that produced the fruit that we saw last week and talked about this week. It's the same roots dug down in the hearts of this people that produced the unity, the fellowship, the effectiveness, the power, the generosity. It's the same thing. Only the gospel taking root in the heart of a person and the life of the people can produce such a radically complete obedience. And this is what Peter begins to expose just a little bit right here as he's talking to the council. In verse 30, he said, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. He's going to rehearse the gospel. He's going to rehearse the one thing that's transformed his heart from the inside out to produce the kind of obedience and power and effectiveness that they're so jealous of, they're so angry about. He says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, or Lord and savior, your Bible will say, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we're witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. It wasn't just simply a message that they knew that produced transformation. 
Rick and I were talking about on Saturday night. It wasn't simply a message they knew that produced transformation. This message of the person and work of Jesus had become precious. It had become a treasure. That's why we talk around here about increasingly treasuring the riches of the gospel. The gospel and the person and the work of Jesus had become precious to these people, and that preciousness, that treasure in the gospel produced in them, in their hearts, from the inside out, a radically complete obedience to the word of God despite the circumstances they found themselves in. And those roots, those gospel roots, produced in this ragtag, messed up group of people, a church community that could stand before the religious elite of their day and be accused of filling an entire city with a message of the gospel. And so my, my, my prayer, I was, I was thinking, eh, what in the world, what, what does this have to do with, with us and, and, and how are we going to be known by this? And as I was praying for us, here's what I wrote. My, my prayer for us as we consider this next year and the years to come is that God would give us his spirit in a greater measure and that we could, would be a people who could truly say that we were gospel-centered. Because the more we stay centered on the gospel, and plead for the empowering presence of God's spirit, the more free we will be. The more free we will be from the opinion and the love of the praise of men, the more free we will be from the love of our stuff and the love of our things, the more free we will be from the fear of persecution and suffering, and the more free we will be to obey God in complete and radical measures. It's only when the gospel takes root and the spirit begins to empower that these things take place. And it's when these, thing, these things take place that we could stand to be accused of being the people who have filled the city with the gospel. There's one more thing I want us to see, just a few minutes. We actually have lunch for people in the back, so I, I'm just gonna take a couple extra minutes. Is that cool? I mean, some of you may have brought your lunch. I mean, one more thing. Is that cool? You all right? All right, one more thing. I, I love this. I gotta do it. I'm sorry. There's one thing, one thing else. Let's, let's, let's go. Verse 33. We'll go quick on this one, I think. Now, when they heard this, Talking about the council, Peter's refusal to obey them, but to simply obey God. And when they had heard the gospel recounted to them by Peter, they were enraged, and they wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, he stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. God's going to use this man to, to do something really impressive here. And Gamaliel said to them, men of Israel, take care of what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to be opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus again and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Talking about Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They were not only radically free to obey God despite the circumstances they found themselves in, but they were unbelievably joyful in the face of such persecution. Radically free to obey despite the circumstance, unbelievably joyful in the face of 
persecution and suffering. Already they had had to deal with the jealousy of the council. Already they had to deal with the persecution of false accusation, of false teaching of the council. We can talk about all that stuff another time, but there was something else they had to endure. After the wisdom of Gamaliel kind of, kind of soothed the crowd and the council brought them back in, they beat the apostles. Just a little while before, they were in prison, and what happened? An angel of the Lord showed up. He opened the jail. He set them free to go and preach. Now they come before the council, and where's the angel? Where's the angel this time? Instead, 39 lashes to the back, ripping their skin and their muscle and their sinew from the bone. Where was the angel this time? And in the face of that, they leave the presence of the council rejoicing for having had the honor of suffering the dishonor that they just experienced. Dishonor for them had become honor. Persecution had produced joy. This is where we have to talk for just a second. I would be remiss if, if, if I, I skipped over this. This, this is actually where we, we have to talk because in the church today, especially in the American church and, and in the church that we're exporting to the world around us, we have majored in the celebration of the miraculous deliverance. We have majored in the angel at the door of the jail opening the door for them to go free. And you know what? Praise God. Praise God for the intervening hand of God in the face of such circumstances. But we have taken that and we have majored in that and we have said for those who who were to reflect this early church, that's normative for your life. That's normative. And we've paraded people up in front of people and given them book deals and said, for the healthy Christian, for the victorious Christian, this is normative for the Christian life. But what happens when the angel doesn't show up at the door? What happens when the lashes fall? This is where we have failed. Because when the angel hasn't showed up at the door, we haven't walked away joyful for having suffered the dishonor. And we don't find the dishonor to produce honor in our hearts. Something has gone terribly wrong. I got the clock. Hebrews 11. I'm going to going to do this because this is going to have to you listen to this you've got to see this this is god's grace give me give me wisdom here or give me wisdom I, I, this i pray will tie it all together for you hebrews 11 how does dishonor become honor how does persecution become joy how will we be known for a people that are free in such a way for this to be what we're known for Hebrews 11, look at verse 29. We'll start there. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had been given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets and who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And I'll stop there because this is what we've majored in. This is what we have said for those who were to reflect the life of God's people. It should be normative 
for our experience. But what we'll see time and time and time again in the book of Acts is that scripture just slaps that stupidness in the face. But we swallow it hook, line, and sinker. What do we do when the angel doesn't show up at the door? Hebrews eleven twenty nine 29 through the first part of 35 is the American gospel. We're told all day long that we should walk around and shut the mouths of lions. That if we just do this, if we just believe this, if we just do these things, then we'll put foreign armies to flight. And there's more books than we could ever shake a stick at that will give us different techniques for doing it. If you just do this, then you can get your hands around the lion. If you can just do this, then you can keep his mouth away from your face. And we're taught that this should be normative. But it's about to go really bad for the American gospel. Look at Hebrews eleven thirty-five. 35. Not even a turn of phrase. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Of whom, look at where this falls, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Here's the thing. Some of you will shut the mouths of lions. Some of you will be devoured by them. For some of you, the angel will stand at the door of the jail, and for some of you, he won't. For some of you, you will put foreign armies to flight. Some of you will get run over. Some of you will receive back your dead from the resurrection. Some of you will have to wait. And what we have done is we have taken what was situational in Scripture, left to the wisdom and providence of God, and we have said that this should be normative for our life. And the church has said that where you fall on the scale of victory and success and health is in part due to how you see this played out in your life failing people because we don't walk around with joy and we don't see dishonor turned into honor because we've stopped essentially here reading look down at Hebrews 12 therefore since some of you are going to be devoured by lions since some of you are going to be beaten since some of you are going to shut the mouths of lions and since some of you are actually going to overthrow armies Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with, ra- with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Since we shut the mouths of lions, since some are devoured by lions, we better lay aside every sin and weight that so easily entangles since sometimes there's an angel at the door and sometimes there's not. Since sometimes we're set free and sometimes we're beaten. Let us therefore lay aside every sin and every weight that so easily entangles 
and run our race with endurance. To be the people that produce the fruit of such unity and effectiveness and generosity and obedience and joy in the, in the face of such dishonor. We best take seriously the sin and the wickedness and the snares in our hearts. And we best be a people who are passionate about laying aside the things that so easily ensnare. The so easily the things that rob us, that do danger and damage to the roots of the gospel in our hearts. If we want to, if we want to be a, a people who are accused generations from now of having filled the city of Richmond with the teaching of the gospel, we're going to need a, a freedom. A freedom that's only produced by the roots of the gospel having taken hold of our heart and producing a freedom to love people fully, to give away our lives completely, to obey completely, and to suffer and face persecution and obstacles with joy. And to do that, we are going to have to be ruthless about putting aside the sin that so easily entangles us. To be accused of filling the city with the teaching of the gospel, we're going to have to run our race with endurance. We're going to have to run with endurance, and we're going to have to throw it all off. And in the midst of that, to find ourselves accused of filling the city with the gospel, we're going to have to keep our eyes focused, our gaze focused on Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Our eyes cannot be focused on our circumstances. Our eyes cannot be focused on the lion, the army, the jail. Our eyes must be completely focused on the person and work of Jesus. Yes, we pray for God's hand to move mightily just as the church did. Yes, we pray that God, through us, would put foreign armies to flight and would shut the mouths of lions, but we're not fixated on that. We're fixated on who he is. We're fixated on the one who for the joy set before him endured our sin, endured the punishment for our sin, the one who absorbed our dishonor, and through him who God turned that into honor and joy. This was the character of the early church. Times have changed, but the gospel hasn't. Let me close with, with this, one of my favorite Young preachers here in America. I think most of you probably listened to him. Matt Chandler. He said, we endure not because we have the American vision of success, but because our hearts and minds are his. If we're thrown to the lions, praise his name. If we get to be Daniel, praise his name. And so my prayer for us as I, I bring this thing to a close is that we would be a people who are passionate about running our race with endurance. Passionate about throwing off every weight and every sin that so easily entangles and that we would be a people who would be known for having our eyes fixed firmly on Jesus. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, is now exalted to the right hand of God. May the gospel never cease to be precious to you. 
and may the roots of the gospel go deep in your soul. And by God's grace, may it produce the fruit of righteousness and transformation. And may history look back on your life and this church. And may we be found accused of having filled the city with the message of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the confidence and the security that we have in knowing that this is your plan, this is your purposes, this is your mission and your kingdom that's being expanded. Lord, lay waste to the parts of our heart that want to see our kingdom exalted, that want to see our name exalted, that want to see our name made much of, Lord, and give us the joy of seeing our lives and the life of this church square deeply into your story and your mission and your purpose. And may we begin to have a confidence that comes not from our abilities and not from our gifts and not from the things that we can create, but a confidence that comes from knowing that what you have started, you have promised to finish and that you are building your church and the gates of hell will not come against it. And Lord, that what we are a part of is the one thing in all of eternity that can never fail. Let that confidence produce freedom in us to be your witnesses that you've called us to be here in this place and to the ends of the earth. We ask this, Lord, that your name would be glorified, that you would be made much of, and that transformation would come to the people in this city, that Richmond, Virginia could be filled, filled through and through with the teaching of the gospel. Amen.